Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Lamar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. I'm, I sound euphoric because we actually finished the last episode, which took <laughs> forever. And now we're going to tape another one before Akil goes on a, on a cross-country trip. Um, so I'm a little... Uh, I'm a little punchy right now. Anyway, okay, so welcome back, audience. And so here's a shout-out to all of the new listeners this week that tuned into the Ali Velshi show on MSNBC on Saturday, where Professor Marr appeared and talked about Democrats and Republicans, but not in the usual way, correct, Akil? Yeah, we talked about Republican and Democrat. Are these the same? Republics? And democracies, are these opposed concepts? Are these basically quite closely analogous concepts? And why do we care about that? Well, because there are a bunch of folks out there now in Arizona and elsewhere. They tend to be affiliated with, and not coincidentally, the self-described Republican Party that are pushing a certain meme. It's been out there for a very long time that America is a republic and not a democracy, and those of us who call it a democracy are misunderstanding, they say, the basic essence of the American constitutional system. And Ali was doing an episode on, like, where is this coming from, and and what does it mean? And it just turns out this is something that is one of my many, many obsessions. I've been writing about this for over 20 years. In 1994, I wrote an article entitled The Central Meaning of Republican Government. And why is that even a phrase that has captured my attention? Because Article 4 of the Constitution actually uses a a phrase. The phrase is Republican government. The United States shall guarantee to each state a Republican form of government. And so I wrote an article back in 1994. We're going to post it on this week's show notes, and, and we're going to actually return to this issue, Andy, in, in a future episode uh, very soon. But is the word Republican in that clause an important word, an important concept? I say, yes. Does it mean the opposite of democracy? I say, no, it's actually basically synonymous with democracy. And that's what I wrote back in 1994. And I have a, a, an important section of my uh, book, America's Constitution, a biography, which appeared in 2005, revisiting that question. And I got to the Article 4 clause on Republican form of government. So this has been one of my obsessions forever. So, Ali, thank you very much for inviting me to share uh, some of my ideas with your amazing audience. He's, he's a really a, a scholar and a gentleman himself. I'm very grateful to him. But in a future episode, we'll talk a lot more about what republicanism means and why it matters constitutionally. But just in a nutshell, for those of our audience members who who saw the Ali Velshi show and for those who didn't, here's my bottom line. That I said potato, potato. There are two ways of describing the same thing, which is, in a phrase, government of the people, by the people, for the people. And it's of the people as well as for the people. Some Republican folks say Republicanism means, yeah, maybe for the people, but never of the people. It can't be direct. And I'm saying, well, 
juries are ordinary citizens participating directly, not through filtered representatives, you see. And initiatives and referenda are true in many states and state constitutions. They're important features. And that's direct political participation. I was about to say direct democracy. You see, I could have said direct republicanism because the two are the same thing, potato, potato, basically. For those of you who know your classical languages, republicanism, a republic, comes from the Latin race, publica, the public's thing, the people's thing. Um, and democracy, so that's Latin, and the Roman Republic was the people's thing before it became an empire ruled by Caesars. The Romans are building on the Greeks before them, the ancient Romans were, and democracy comes from the Greek, demoskratia, it's rule by the demos, by the people. So a rule by the people in, in Greek, the people's thing, the public's thing, in Latin, potato, potato, pretty much the same thing. And one final little note, and we'll talk about this a lot more, Andy, in, in the next episode, but another reason I'm obsessed with this clause, which guarantees a Republican form of government, is it's an illustration of one of my largest themes, which is there are certain provisions of the Constitution that mean one thing at the founding and a slightly different thing after and because of the Reconstruction Amendments after the Civil War. And nowhere is this more true than for the Republican Government Clause, which is, in fact, the entire basis for Reconstruction and the legality of Reconstruction. Charles Sumner refers to this clause as the sleeping, the, the great senator from Massachusetts. He refers to this clause as the sleeping giant of the Constitution that has awakened at this important hour, the hour being the 1860s, to guide the republic, to guide the democracy, if you will, to, to guide the American system. And actually, this uh, is, is hugely important now for a reason that's very familiar to longtime listeners of this podcast, because those who think that the power is not invested in the people think things like, it's, va- it's vested in the state legislature, in the independent state legislature. The free-floating state legislature that somehow operates outside the Constitution that was ratified by the people of that state, that, that operates independently of and in defiance of provisions in many a state constitution providing for initiative and referenda and other forms of direct democracy. These ISL folks, independent state legislature folks, think that a state legislature doesn't have to pay attention to the state Supreme Court's interpretation. The state constitution and state Supreme Courts are directly elected statewide in many a state, one person, one vote. And state legislatures typically aren't elected statewide. They're elected in districts, and districts create the possibility of gerrymandering. Right. And of course, the whole ISL bottom line that we talked about uh, in our earlier episodes has to do with the possibility that voting itself could be undermined or even eliminated in certain cases. And that's a classic example, if you will, of taking power away from the people and giving it to a body. Which is why this seemingly technical, trivial, semantic debate about republics versus democracies actually matters. And Andy, we actually did, I think, at least three episodes on ISL, right? That's correct. And your brother, Vic, a great scholar in this uh, field, was was part of two of them. And there's also, of course, your very prominent article right now 
uh, co-authored by Vic and yourself, which um, is in Supreme Court review uh, and uh, was available on SSRN, which is turning out to be the definitive article on this subject. And that's freely downloadable. And for those of you who, who are especially new to the podcast, we have more than 80 episodes that are freely available in our archives. As, as you just heard, three episodes on independent state legislature theory, what it is, why it matters. So after you listen to this episode, please, if you're at all interested in ISL, check out those episodes in our free archives. So once again, welcome to our new viewers, and we are going to get into this some more. But every one thing we promise you is that every episode you'll, you'll learn something. And today you're going to learn about something that seems also esoteric, a tax clause from a, that was addressed in a Supreme Court case in the 1790s. Um, boy, that's peripheral, but actually, no. So you'll come away from this episode with a lot more than you entered. Last time we talked about what was in the news, Mar-a-Lago, and what that meant, which is Fourth Amendment, and everything that you always wanted to know about the Fourth Amendment, but didn't know you should ask. And uh, now you have a completely different view of it. And now today we're going to teach you all about something you know nothing about, direct taxes. What the hell is that? And uh, what does that have to do with wealth taxes? And what does it have to do with the inflation uh, Reduction Act, and all such exciting uh, topics. Actually, I know it sounds dry, even though I have a friend, at least one person in the audience every week, uh, my friend who was a, a tax partner at a New York firm, and he's he's jumping up and down. But the, the rest of you, we're going to keep you interested as well. Andy, we've got our title, uh, given what you just said, and we are out of living here. Everything you always wanted to know about tax, but yes. we were afraid to ask. Yes, there you go. With, with uh, apologies to Woody Allen. And who wrote the book? I do not know. Just know it had a yellow cover. And an asterisk right. by, next to sex. Right, sex right. with and an asterisk. Because, and, and the asterisk meant, but we're afraid to ask. Right. And so we, we, we need to put up a graphic on that on the, on the website so people can see the book. Right. Okay. I'm, I, I'll bet it's extremely dated at this point. <laughs> But because anyway. now you know everything. Well, or I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> We're not everything. going there. I'm, We're afraid, not going to, there. I'm afraid to ask everything. All right. So the most important case of the 18th century, or as you like to say, of the 1790s, um, Hylton, United States versus Hylton. Yes. Argued by the great Alexander Hamilton, who was yes. undefeated at the Supreme Court in advocacy. One and oh. Yes. So. His only Supreme Court argument and he was in private practice. He was brought out of private practice to argue the case. And it was in the, the national capital, the temporary national capital, which was at the time, Philadelphia. And everyone actually in the rest of government basically played hooky just to watch Alexander Hamilton, who put on, by all accounts, just an absolutely bravura performance and ends up winning the case unanimously in the United States Supreme Court. And was that um, and because... Hamilton was such a celebrity or was it because yes. the case was so important? Both. But what I actually say about it in the book, which I have not plugged in the last 15 seconds, here's what I say about the argument itself. And just to be really precise, one could argue that 
Lawsuits about the Alien and Sedition Act were very, very important. They were at the end of the decade, but none of those cases actually reached the United States Supreme Court. So this is the most important Supreme Court case of the decade, indeed of the pre-John Marshall era. In a letter to his wife written shortly after the February 1796 oral argument, Justice James Iredale made no mention of Hamilton's co-counsel, who was the Attorney General of the United States, Charles Lee, but marveled at Hamilton's virtuoso performance. And this is his letter to his wife. Mr. Hamilton spoke in our court, attended by the most crowded audience I ever saw there, both houses of Congress being almost deserted on the occasion. Though he was in very ill health, he spoke with astonishing ability and in a most pleasing manner and was listened to with the profoundest attention. His speech lasted about three hours. In one part of it, he affected me extremely, unquote. Federalist newspapers also swooned, and then I added this parenthesis. To his many fans in those days, Hamilton was an 18th century superstar, akin today to, well, Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> and then I say, in Philadelphia itself, John Fenno's Gazette of the United States showered praise upon the, quote, most eloquent speech of this great orator and statesman offering up a clear, impressive, and classical analysis. Um, and that was reprinted or things like that in lots of newspapers up and down the country. And yes, the, the thing that everyone in America is focused on is this really important question, what is a direct tax and why does it matter? So by the end of this episode, audience, you'll know the answer to that, both what is a direct tax, at least according to Alexander Hamilton, and why it matters. Actually, let me begin by just talking about today, you know, why it matters just even a little bit and just teeing up the question just to show you that this isn't just an antiquarian question about the 1700s, but it's hugely relevant today. So let's take this Inflation Reduction Act. Okay, here's what it isn't quite, Andy, for Andy and Akil. Alas, it's not quite a tax reduction act, and it might have been. Some of our audience will know there's this thing called salt, and I'm not talking about the thing that you add to, to, to pepper to, to spice up your, your meals. I'm talking about the state and local tax issue. And for um, most of the modern era, for much of the modern era, I don't know about things long ago, but until pretty recently, until basically Donald Trump, on your federal income tax, if you itemized your deductions, you were allowed to take a deduction for state and local taxes that you paid. Your car tax, sales tax, but, but especially your property tax. And in some states that have high property taxes, states like New Jersey, Andy, where you live, and like Connecticut, where I live, this tax deduction was actually pretty substantial because our property taxes at the local level are pretty substantial. Now, under Trump, that was capped, that state and local tax deduction at a certain amount. So we actually can't claim a deduction above a certain cap even if we're paying property tax, state property taxes above that cap. Some Republicans say middle-class folks will like this because it's only the richy rich, the people who have expensive property that can, can benefit from this 
deduction. Well, I think what it really was is that it's more in blue states where property taxes are high. Yes, this was a way of stocking it to Connecticut and New Jersey and California. Absolutely. And why Um, is that? Because you spend more because property taxes frequently used to pay for educational expenses when, uh, you know, schools are at the uh, administer at the local level rather than the state level. And that happens a lot in in blue states. And there's a high priority on spending money on education. And in a state like, for example, Florida, where that doesn't uh, take place, not financed by local property taxes it's for financed at the state level that uh, doesn't take place. So Right. And that's because, Andy, all of your neighbors and all of my neighbors, after their kids went through public school, paid for by local governments, paid for by local property taxes, after their kids went to school with, with property taxes, they all moved down to Florida and retired down there and don't want to pay for other people's kids and have less well-financed public schools and lower property taxes. Okay. So, Now, what we've just done is a legal political analysis. I'm going to give you actually now the technical tax debate um, and then say a little bit more about the recent bill. So one side says wealthy people are the only ones who can really benefit from this state and local property tax exemption. So so what if they pay more? Let's let's cap the exemption and they should pay because they're wealthier. Counter argument is actually... In principle, you should be allowed to deduct your state taxes because they really aren't income to you. That that money never came in. It it went out. It wasn't income. It was outgo or, you know, never saw. It just sort of went directly from my employer to, you know, my uh, state, my locality. And and if it's an income tax, it, it really wasn't income to me. That's the best argument for not counting it in my income tax. As a, um, as a general principle, that's true. But I mean, I think when you come to property taxes, another argument, which is that you can buy a piece of property, let's say you buy it, you make good investment, you buy it very cheaply. And now it appreciates, but your income doesn't go up. You don't have any more money than you did before to pay the, the, the property tax. Okay, well, hold that thought, because this is, I promise you, going to be really implicated in the Hamilton constitutional question. But we're, we're just trying to get into it by explaining how this is connected to what has happened recently. So you used to be able to- I can't wait to get that off my chest. It's a sore I know, I know. And so, it, 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 so we used to actually be able to deduct state and local property taxes on our federal tax forms. Uh, Trump got rid of that. A lot of Democrats in coastal blue states- didn't like that. The Chuck Schumers of the world, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, you know, the, the folks from San Francisco and New York and New Haven, for that matter. A lot of people thought that when the Biden administration passed some big new comprehensive kind of tax reform, that one of the things that would happen is that that cap would be eliminated. And that did not happen last week. So that tees up two issues. One why is it the case that we have state and local property taxes, but not federal property taxes? We have all sorts of other federal taxes. We have federal income tax. And I just said it really isn't income if it never you know, came in, but we have a federal income tax. There are federal sales taxes, like for example, gasoline excise taxes. There are 
federal tariffs of various sorts on imported goods. They're lower now than they were at the founding, but there are all sorts of federal taxes for duties and imposts for excises, certain kinds of sales tax um, on especially gasoline, as I said, on um, federal income, on income. Why isn't there point one, a federal property tax? There's a federal gift tax of a certain sort. If you, if you give more than a certain amount of, of money. So the, Oh my God, the federal government knows all sorts of ways of taxing us up and down and sideways and up the wazoo. So first question, why no federal property tax? That's one question I want you to just uh, audience think about. And now I want to tell you about what's going to happen in the future. We Democrats, I'm a Democrat, believe in providing, for example, health care to, to people who need it. I'm really proud of supporting Obamacare, which was a big tax scheme and was ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court as a tax. And, and that was the argument that I actually had always made on behalf of Obamacare since a tax. It was other things as well. It was a regulation of interstate commerce. I believe it's a national security measure. I think it was a basic human rights law because the rest of the world actually thinks that access to some decent minimal level of health care is a basic human right. And, and I'm actually with them on that. Okay. But we still actually aren't covering, Andy, all of our fellow citizens need. And you and I joke a little bit, but but we, we're doing well, you and I. And, and we are the ones who are going to pay more than others, but we've been given more. And we, you and I, we're Democrats. We believe, actually, in a social safety net. And you mentioned education for the young. And I, you know, we could talk about health care for the elderly. And, and we could talk about health care for the, the sick or who might be sick, who might become sick. You're a retired physician. We believe in this. And that's going to require funds. And the Democrats have done a lot on health care, but there's still more to do. So in the next round of reform, just like Obamacare was a reform and it, it involved certain government benefits and certain taxes, and this most recent law was a reform and it involves all sorts of benefits, including drug benefits, healthcare benefits, and subsidies for Obamacare, but also some taxes and therefore, but not the tax relief, Andy, that you and I wanted on the salt cap. Well, the next round is going to involve, again, some government benefits that you and I believe in, but they're going to have to be paid for. And many people on the left believe that they should be paid for by a federal wealth tax, not an income tax on annual income, not an estate tax um, when one dies and tries to pass the assets, typically intergenerationally, not a gift tax, not an excise tax, um, they believe there should be a federal wealth tax. And they're not pushing for a federal property tax, interestingly. And they're not pushing for a federal property tax because for reasons that I'm going to explain, I mean, you haven't had a federal property tax. Most people believe, and, and Hamilton might have been one of them, you see, that a federal property tax would, as a typical matter, be unconstitutional for reasons having to do with these two words in the Constitution, direct tax. Okay, so there won't be a federal property tax, but the question is, would a federal wealth tax, the taxes, real property, yes, but also personal property like automobiles, jewelry, but also all sorts of other non-real property, stocks, bonds, bank accounts, um, and the like, liquid assets, would a federal wealth tax imposed annually based on, on your, your total wealth, would such a tax in order to pay for the next round of, of health care reform, would such a tax be 
constitutional or federal tax. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode, because in order, because there are going to be folks, conservatives, who are going to say that's unconstitutional. You can't have a federal wealth tax. And they're going to actually invoke none other than Alexander Hamilton for that proposition. And they're going to invoke the Hylton case, arguably, for that proposition. And I think they're wrong about that. And by the end of this episode, the audience will actually be able to decide for themselves what they think about all this. And it's going to all hinge on two little words, direct tax. What is a direct tax? Andy, it is so interesting you ask it that way. Andy, several places in the Constitution, the words direct tax do appear. I'll give the audience all those uh, references in just a minute. But, but here's what happened in Philadelphia, because apparently not all taxes are direct taxes. There are special rules for direct taxes that don't apply to other taxes, and not all government ways, uh, revenue measures, ways of, of government putting its hand in your pocket are actually described by the Constitution as taxes. Some are described as duties and imposts and excises. So kind of, you know, uh, so the question is, uh, within the meaning of the Constitution, what's a direct tax? Now, here's the amazing story. According to James Madison's notes from the Philadelphia Convention, at one point, one of the delegates, Rufus King, quote, asked what was the precise meaning of direct taxation? No one answered. <laughs> okay. So, so some of them had no clue exactly. And, and again, I'm going to read you the constitutional provisions and explain to you why it matters. Now, I just told you, I just quoted James Madison's notes on Philadelphia Convention. And his views about what is a direct tax were actually directly opposed to Alexander Hamilton's views. They can't both be right, and a good originalist is going to have to choose, and, and I'm going to be with Hamilton. And I'm going to be with him on the merits because he made the most sense. But I'm also going to be with him because epistemically, he actually understood this issue better. What's my piece of evidence for that? That he filled no fewer than seven Federalist essays, Federalist paper essays on the tax question. So he thought more about taxation than anyone else. That's why he's the Treasury Secretary. At the end of the day, I'm going to be with Hamilton over Madison for several reasons, because actually Hamilton's arguments on the merits are the best. Because Madison, in the end, changed his mind on this. It's just like the bank. He said one thing. And actually, then later on, he said a different thing. He voted against a certain kind of tax, a tax on carriages. This would be like a yacht tax, a luxury tax today. He voted against it and says unconstitutional. But Hamilton, uh, and it gets litigated, it goes to the Supreme Court, they unanimously side with Hamilton. Oh, it sounds a lot like McCulloch versus Maryland. And then what does Madison do as president? He signs a carriage tax into law, but he doesn't make a big deal of it at all. And none of his biographers have noticed this. Even Noah Feldman, who writes about what a great constitutional genius uh, James Madison is, but that's because no one knows the significance of Hylton, you see. So Madison, first of all, didn't know his stuff. And he gets repudiated unanimously by the Supreme Court. And he flip-flops on this just as he flip-flops on the bank. And from day one, Hamilton knew his stuff on this. He cares about this. He understands this. 
to repeat, he writes seven Federalist Papers on this. Oh, and say it with me, he has George Washington on his side because who signs that original carriage tax, uh, this luxury tax, into law? That would be George Washington, a mind as pure and as intelligent as this country can boast. So at the end of the day, I'm going to say, you want to know what a direct tax is? Pay attention to Alexander Hamilton. He's your man on this issue. But to repeat, originalism does not presuppose that they all agreed on everything. They did not. Now, let's go to the text. Amar-style originalism is holistic. And it turns out that to actually understand this issue, you need to understand many provisions of the Constitution and how they fit together. I'm just going to read you the relevant texts. Oh, and in this case, it's actually not just several texts from the founding, but Amar-style originalism is intergenerational. So I'm not going to read you just texts from the founding, but from later in our constitutional experience. So here's the first patch of texts. It's in Article 1, Section 2. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, dot, 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 And then it goes on to basically say representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, three fifths of all other persons. Okay. That's the infamous three fifths clause. And it's not just about representation in the house of representatives, but it's about direct taxes as well. Representatives and direct taxes are going to be apportioned by state population, and state population is going to be free population plus three-fifths of slave population. Now, they don't like to use the word slave, so they have all this euphemisms, you know, three-fifths of other persons, but that's the infamous three-fifths clause, but it's not just about representation, it's about direct taxation. So that's the first. Whatever rule you have for representation in the house. Oh, and by the way, and therefore for the electoral college, you have to have the same apportionment rule for a certain kind of tax that is a direct tax. Not all taxes, only direct taxes. So that's the first clause. Now, here's the next clause. It's Article 1, Section 8, and it's also really important. And the three-fifths clause is a very important clause. A lot of people were debating it in Philadelphia, and, and thereafter it's one of the more important clauses in the Constitution. How do I know this is important? Article 1 is the first and longest article. It's about Congress's structure and powers. Section 8 is the longest section of the first and longest article. And it's all about the powers of Congress. Here's how it begins, actually. So it's the first sentence of the longest section of the first and longest article. So this is an, an important location. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, but all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. So, by the way, hmm, there, it mentions four things, taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, and says the last three of them have to be uniform, duties, imposts, and excises, but apparently not all taxes. And there's going to be a reason why, because in fact, direct taxes not only don't need to be uniform, they can't be uniform for reasons I'll explain. So already there's this deep tension. It's just hidden in the bowels of the Constitution in its, in its technical details. Ta- direct taxes have to be apportioned by state population with a three-fifths clause. 
but actually duties, imposts, and excises actually have to be uniform, which is going to turn out to be the opposite of apportionment uh, for reasons that I'll explain. Okay, so we're now going to need to figure out if something is a direct tax, oh, the apportionment rule kicks in, state-by-state apportionment, or it's not a direct tax, in which case, if it's a duty, impost, or excise, in fact, it's going to be required that there be something different, uh, uniformity. Okay, but now what's a direct tax? We're back to Rufus King's question, which was your question. Now, here's a third clause of the Constitution. This is Article 1, Section 9. Article 1, Section 8 are the powers of Congress. Article 1, Section 9 are the limits on the powers of Congress. The earlier provision, the three-fifths clause, was actually all about the structure of Congress, in particular the House of of Representatives. That was Article 1, Section 2, you see. So Article 1, Section 2 is the structure of Congress. Article 1, Section 8 are the powers of Congress. Now the limits on the powers, Article 1, Section 9. Here's the first clause of Article 1, Section 9. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. So what's that all about? You know, they're, they're, they're using all sorts of elliptical, indirection, mumbo-jumbo, camouflage. What they're actually saying is Congress can't prohibit slaves from being imported into America before 1808. It can prohibit anything else. It can, it can prohibit importation of tea or, or of tar or of tallow or of cattle or of cloth, but it can't prohibit the importation of slaves before 1808. And in addition, though, but it can put a $10 tax per person. That is per head. It can't prohibit um, importation of slaves, but it can have, in effect, a head tax of $10 per imported slave. That's Article 1, Section 9, and where it uses the word tax, uh, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1. Now, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4, no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census, okay, here and before. And, and so that now they're not just talking about a tax on imported slaves, but any kind of head tax, a tax, for example, on slaves already in the United States. That's a head tax. And they're saying, oh, a head tax, capitation, that's a direct tax. And it says, so it's already now, now we have the first hint of what a direct tax might be, a head tax on human beings in the United States, not being imported, but just a a tax per person, per head. That's a direct tax. And apparently it's not the only direct tax because it said no capitation or other direct tax. Now we come to Article 5, which is about how the Constitution can be amended. And in general, it says anything can be amended anytime, any way, except for two provisos. One, if you try to amend Senate equality, you can't do it unless every state agrees, in effect. Okay? You can, 
in effect, get rid of the Senate altogether. Or you could say, oh, the Senate actually, we drain all the power from the existing Senate except the power to try the impeachments of assistance postmasters general. So you can, you can get rid of a lot of Senate power. And that's an ordinary Article 5 amendment. But if you're going to try to actually in, instead change the apportionment of the, formally the Senate itself, oh, you can't do that unless, in effect, every state agrees. And also providing that you can't amend those provisions of Article 1, Section 9, the 1808 Clause and the Capitation Clause before 1808. So those are the things that are absolutely prohibited by Article 5. The language is provided that no amendment which shall be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses of the ninth section of the first article. Okay. So then there's that. Now it turns out it's more complicated than that because intergenerationally there are later amendments. Okay. I already told you that first clause, which is uh, about direct taxes is connected to three uh, free people and three fifths of all other persons. That is slaves. Well, the 13th amendment gets rid of slavery after the civil war. So how does that affect the analysis? And now the 14th Amendment, Section 2, affects at least part of that original bargain. Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to basically the whole number of all persons. We'll be getting rid of this three-fifths clause. How does that affect the analysis? 14th Amendment, Section 2, also a Civil War Amendment. And then finally, we've got the 16th Amendment, the so-called Income Tax Amendment in the 20th century. Congress shall have power to delay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot of provisions that we have to fit together. And in fact, given that the word census and enumeration appear a couple of times, I could have even also read you the census clause of the Constitution because it's going to be part of the, uh, the equation as well. So, Andy... We're back to the question you asked and Rufus King asked. What is a direct tax and why does it matter? No one answered. (laughs) But Hamilton eventually gave the answer in the Federalist Papers and in his oral argument at Hylton, which persuaded the justices unanimously and um, and several of them, they were in awe of him. You, You heard that actually began to give a definition in their opinions. There wasn't one opinion for the court. There were seriatim opinions by the justices one by one, and they basically all sided with Hamilton and against Madison and begin to give us a definition. But before we get to Hylton, I need to tell you now a little bit more about the facts of the Hylton case, which I've already begun to allude to. It was a tax on carriages that triggered this whole thing, a a luxury tax of a certain sort. Hamilton gets a bad rap as just being, oh, I'm a fat cat for fellow fat cats. That's not who Hamilton is. Hamilton basically believes that you have to fund the necessary functions of government. Now, he thought an army was absolutely necessary, but he understood you had to pay for an army. And the fundamental problem with the Articles Confederation is that states weren't paying the requisitions and and there was no money in the till to pay the soldiers who had valiantly fought in the Revolutionary War to pay domestic 
creditors who had loaned money to the government for its war effort, but who won't do it again in the next war unless you pay them back for the last one, and foreign creditors who bankroll the American Revolution, and again, who who won't fund the, the next war. And there's going to be a next war, alas, because it's a nasty world out there. There are Putins, and there always have been. And so Hamilton understands you need actually a tax system to basically, to borrow a phrase, you need a tax system to, and this is Article 1, Section 8, pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare. And I told you here's one reason for understand, the reason that that's a really important clause. It's the first section of the longest, it's the first clause, first sentence of the longest section of the longest article. But here's another way you know it's important. It's echoing the preamble, the preamble's language of common defense and general welfare. That phrase common defense appeared three times in the Articles of Confederation. That was the core purpose of the Articles of Confederation. But the Articles of Confederation weren't serving its core purpose because states weren't paying. Um, So, um, oh, and it's about this tax issue, which was, by the way, the major precipitant of the Revolutionary War. Now, this is what Akhil Amar didn't understand fully 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I have some discussion of this issue in America's Constitutional Biography, uh, which was written in 2005. Oh, but there's so much more in the new book because the new book, which I haven't plugged in the last 15 seconds, The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760-1840, starts in 1760. It starts in the imperial debate, which is all about taxes and and representatives. No taxation without representation, Okay. Because we just fought this war, the Brits did, we have to pay for it, it's called the Seven Years' War around the world, in America it's called the French and Indian War, big expensive war, someone has to pay for it, the Brits look around and said, ah, the Americans should pay for it, they're the beneficiaries of all of this, we, we just defeated the French in North America, we got Canada, now the, the uh, uh, co- British colonies, uh, colonists in places like Massachusetts don't need to worry about Canada anymore, they're the big beneficiaries of this war effort, they should pay for it. And the Americans think to themselves, why should we pay for a British shield we don't need anymore? And there's a whole debate about taxation and representation. No ta- every, everyone in the audience has heard the phrase, no taxation without representation. And note what that very first sentence that I read to you from the Constitution does. Links representation and taxation of a certain sort, but only a certain kind of taxation. Representation and direct taxes. Here's to remind you the sentence. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned, you know, among the several states, you know, with this three-fifths system. This is originalism. We're looking at words. We're trying to read them all together and holistically and understand these texts which interrelate. It's one constitution, a constitution we are expounding, John Marshall style in the light of the historical context, which is all about taxes and representation in the American Revolution. These are huge issues today, but they were even bigger back then. And the star of the show is Alexander Hamilton and his theory. Okay, so Hamilton believes in taxes. And here's what the Federalists believe. If you're going to tax individuals... And you're going to need to, because if you tax states, they're not paying. Individuals are going to need to be represented. You know, that's like a big picture idea. So under the Articles of Confederation, it was like the United Nations. 
each state was represented, one state, one vote, just like in the UN today. And China has one vote in the General Assembly, and so does the United States, and so does Mexico, and so does Canada. Well, back then, each state had a delegation, and it had one vote. New York had one vote, and uh, so did Virginia. Virginia was the biggest state, most popular state, and so did Rhode Island, the smallest state. So today, you know, Liechtenstein or some tiny little nation has one vote in the General Assembly, and, and so does China or the United States. Okay. And the Articles of Confederation, states were represented, and so states could be taxed. They could be requisitioned. The problem is they didn't pay. And what are you going to do if Virginia doesn't pay? You're going to throw Virginia in jail? How does that work? You know, a Shrek would say, Shrek 1, that is. It's just like Godfather. There were different Shrek. Shrek 1. He says, you and what army? You know, what are you going to do to Virginia if it doesn't pay its dues? What are you going to do to the United States today in the UN if it doesn't pay its dues? So the entire constitutional project is we need a different system. Individuals have to be taxed, but if individuals are taxed, oh, they need to be represented in certain ways. That's where we need a House of Representatives. Oh, and what's the apportionment rule for the House of Representatives? It's actually um, going to be this three-fifths clause. Oh, but that's stinky. Here's why. States are going to get extra credit for their slaves. The more slaves you have, the more seats you get in the House of Representatives. That's the three-fifths clause. Let's try to fuzz that up a little bit. Let's camouflage that a little bit. We're going to try to – we're going to throw in the tax word because that's going to distract people in the ratification a little bit. But by the way, if you look really carefully, it doesn't say representatives and all forms of taxes have to be apportioned. It doesn't say that at all. It says representatives and direct taxes. And it turns out direct taxes are um, a very, very small category of actually revenue measures. That's what Hamilton's going to argue. That's what the court's going to agree to in Hamilton. That's what I'm going to um, argue today. But I've just been giving you some of the backstory. And now, because Andy, you promised this in your teaser at the beginning and last episode too, we've connected it to not just taxes, but to slavery. You see, this is connected to the three-fifths clause, slave importation in Article 1, Section 9, the 1808 clause. So that's part of the background of all this. But Big, big, first big point. The Constitution was designed to make it easy for the federal government to collect taxes. That's the whole point of the project. This is a Washingtonian Constitution designed to generate revenue for an army and national security, which is necessary. And, oh, it's so clear. You see that, again, to repeat, the words common defense appear three times in the Articles of Confederation. They appear in the first sentence of the Constitution very prominently, common defense in the preamble. That's why we, the people, ordain the Constitution. They reappear in the first sentence of the longest section of the longest article. Taxes are about common defense. They're not hiding this. This is, and, and they're not hiding that there are going to be different ways of collecting measures, taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. Okay. Why? For common defense and general welfare. Okay. Big picture, first point. It's designed to make it easier, much easier for the federal government to meet its revenue needs. Why? For common defense. Just like why the bank, we heard in a previous episode, for common defense. Big picture. Who understands that best of all? George Washington does. Alexander Hamilton does. 
James Madison, not so much, you see. And the federal papers that he's writing that no one pays attention to at the time aren't about common defense. The ones that everyone pays attention to at the time were written by Hamilton and Jay, and they're definitely Washingtonian, and they're about common defense. So big picture, if they do disagree on these things, if there's any doubt at all, I'm going to first just see what the words actually do say, but if there's going to be any ambiguity, I'm probably going to want to side, if I can, with Washington and Hamilton, and Madison doesn't understand this stuff as well. And by the way, to repeat, he's going to change his mind on all this later on. Okay, first big point, it's about raising revenue. Now, how do you raise revenue? Alexander Hamilton is the Treasury Secretary at the beginning. That's his job, is raising money for the Army. And he says, and he has all sorts of ways of raising money. Tariffs, which are in in the language of the day, tariffs are a kind of impost. And in the language of of Article 1, Section 8, Congress shall have powers to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. So a classic impost is basically a tax on an imported good. And a duty might be a tax on an exported good of a certain sort. Excises are basically sales taxes of a certain sort. And the, the Stamp Act, which was a sales tax of a certain sort, was actually called a tax. It was called a duty. It was called both. But now again, what's a direct tax? Oh, that's going to be a subset of taxes. We're going to need to figure out what that means. But Hamilton's looking for all sorts of sources of revenue. Um, so there are tariffs that are imposed. Again, in the language of the Constitution, these tariffs are, are imposts. But he also says we should tax carriages. Carriages are luxury items. If you're a, a Jane Austen fan, it would be like a Baruch Landau or, or something like that, a Phaeton. The carriage tax that Hamilton gets the Congress to pass and Washington to sign has an exemption, Andy, for basically vehicles used to transport agricultural items. But Hamilton, this is a tax in effect on luxury vehicles, Andy. And, and Hamilton is for it because that's where the money is. And he thinks you know, it can be enforced fairly. And Madison is opposed to it, you see, initially. Madison is actually siding with the rich folks and says, and here's partly what he's worried about. Gee, if you can impose a tax on carriages, ooh, what about a tax on slaves? Or what about a tax on all sorts of other things produced by slaves? Or what about a tax on plantation or on rich people generally? Madison is actually the plutocrat here, and Hamilton is actually the Democrat. So Congress passes the carriage tax over Madison's objection, and eventually there's a lawsuit. Madison gets his friends to gin up a lawsuit in Virginia, and Washington asks the attorney general to ask Hamilton, who's by now in private practice, to defend the carriage tax at the Supreme Court. And he does so. And, and, and everyone is watching. Okay, so now let's take this carriage tax from the 1790s. What kind of revenue measure actually was it? If it's a direct tax, then the revenue that you get from it has to be, uh, it's come in proportionate to the slave-adjusted population of each of the states. And for reasons I'm about to explain, that's just going to make it utterly unworkable. Let's imagine instead of being a direct tax, it's just because the Constitution, actually in Article 1, Section 8, talks about taxes, duties, 
imposts and excises, okay? Imposts are like imports and excises. Let's imagine, we'll just put that to one side. But um, can we call it a duty? Well, a duty can be a kind of a tax at the customs house uh, about something that's imported. But actually in the Stamp Act crisis of the 1760s, the tax that Parliament imposed was actually alternatingly called a tax, stamp tax, um, or a duty. So an item that's sold or used in a purely domestic internal sense can easily be called a duty. And if it is a duty, what does the Constitution say about it? It says it has to be uniform throughout the United States. Now, there's one wrinkle. Let, let's first imagine just a, a, a tax um, or you know, a revenue measure on the sale of a carriage. Well, if the sale of a carriage is just a, an internal duty, then the rule is that the carriage has to be charged the same amount by the federal tax collector, whether in Virginia or in New York or Connecticut or New Jersey. So let's imagine it's a $2 tax per carriage. Actually, it was a, it was a tax per axle, but let's just make it nice and easy. A $2 tax per carriage. So you'd have to pay those $2 per carriage no matter where you are. The Constitution requires uniformity. To repeat, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, but all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Easy as pie, just charge the same amount per carriage in any state. So simple. Now, in fact, the carriage tax was a little bit more complicated because it didn't tax the sale of a carriage, but the annual use of a carriage. Just like today, you know, I at least, Andy, you and I haven't talked about this, but every year I pay a certain amount of, of per vehicle. I already bought the vehicle. I already paid sales tax on my car long ago. But every year I actually get taxed by my local government for the automobiles I own. Okay. That's a carryover of this, this carriage tax. That's, a, that's a, a local tax. It's not a federal one, but it's on the use, basically the annual use of my car. Okay. But if that's a duty... The only requirement is it just be the same in every state. Easy as pie. Here's the problem, Andy. If instead it's not a duty, because we could call it a duty, but we call it a tax. And if we call it not just a tax, but a direct tax, we're going to have to get the same proportionate revenue, proportionate to population from each and every state, slave adjusted. That's just going to be impossible. Let's just imagine, just to make it really simple, the math simple, there are two states, New Jersey and Connecticut. Let's just imagine, to make it really simple, they have the exact same population. And let's imagine neither of them has any slaves, just to keep the math utterly simple. Same population and no slaves in, in either one. A tax would have to generate the same amount of revenue from New Jersey as it would generate from Connecticut. If it's a direct tax, that, that, that's, that's what actually Article 1, Section 2 says. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers. That is their, their census numbers, their population. Well, now, 
Andy, unless New Jersey and Connecticut have the exact same number of carriages in use, and what are the odds of that? I'm going to have to actually jigger the numbers so that each state generates the same total revenue. Let's imagine New Jersey is much wealthier than Connecticut. And so a lot more carriages are sold in Connecticut. Well, actually perversely and unworkably, I'm going to need to actually have a lower per carriage tax in New Jersey. Let's imagine 10 times as many carriages are sold or are used in New Jersey, 800 in New Jersey, 80 in Connecticut. Well, the tax in New Jersey is going to have to be one-tenth the tax in Connecticut. That's just kind of unworkable just to, to keep adjusting it. And it's perverse because New Jersey is the richer state. It's actually selling a lot, using a lot more carriages, and we're actually charging the carriage um, users less in New Jersey. Now, that's well, two someone states. Someone could move from New Jersey to Connecticut during the year, which would really oh, complicate Oh, all of matters. these things, you know, oh, my gosh. And now they're not two states. They're 13, and people are moving all the time. And so if we have a broad understanding of direct taxation, it's utterly unworkable. And now I come back to the big point, the whole point. I'm standing like my friend Steve Breyer for the system is supposed to be workable. It's supposed to work. And the Secretary of Treasury would understand that in a way that James Madison actually doesn't, because James Madison doesn't understand trade and taxes and, and administration. He was never good at any of those things. Okay. So simple point, you know, direct taxes, if we have a very broad definition of them, that's going to make it hard for the government to accomplish its sent, you know, it's one of the key purposes, which is to generate money to pay for the army, national security, national defense, um, common defense. Okay, so now, but if it's a duty, to repeat, if it's a duty, the same amount is required, you know, per carriage, whether it's New Jersey or Connecticut or New York or wherever. But if it's a direct tax, I'm going to have to modify it. I'm going to have to modify every year, every state. You know, when people move around, oh, my God, it's going to be a disaster. Um, actually, if people move around, I'm allowed to actually peg it to the decennial census. But still, it's, it's going to be disastrous. You know, um, so we're back to your question earlier. Um, uh, we're back to um, Rufus King's question. So what is a direct tax and why? Here's what Hamilton says, working backwards, because he's a functionalist, big picture guy. First premise, taxes are really important. Revenue is really important to the system. And the system is, second premise, the system is supposed to work. So let's not call anything. We're just working backwards, you see, from the conclusion, a direct tax that actually isn't um, workable through a, through a census system. So now, actually, we've got a bit of a test. Okay, if you're if you're actually um, measuring things, for example, on a decennial census, maybe you could administer it through a decennial census system. And indeed, several of the justices in Hamilton say just that. Um, working backwards and listening to Hamilton, the only things we're going to call direct taxes are things that can be sensibly pegged to the census system to apportionment, because because that's the way of reading the Constitution holistically. What would be an example of that? You took the words right out of my mouth. What does the Constitution, the Constitution gives us one clear example of that. 
it actually tells us one kind of direct tax on per capitation, capitation yeah. and other direct taxes. Article one, section nine, clause four. No capitation or other direct tax. Oh, teeny tiny little word, but other is telling me that a capitation is a direct tax. Oh, well, that fits my definition pretty nicely already. That is sensibly administered through a census system. That is, in fact, what we count in the census is people, heads. Okay. And we actually need to count slaves also because that's going to affect apportionment for the House of Representatives and therefore the Electoral College. Okay. You might say, oh, there's still one other little problem. There are going to be several definitions that work, but I've already given you bottom line carriage taxes no matter what can't actually right, but you know let's just go back for a second so you now so what's a capitation a capitation is a is a tax on every person i i take it correct a head tax right but ten dollars per head two dollars per right, head so it's what slaves count three-fifths so how about a tax not on every head but just on slave heads okay yeah, well that's so, what i so, said earlier yeah, well, hold on till now. Let's let's actually no. You were talking about imported slaves before. Uh, yes. This is this is okay. So here's what I say. Now we're going to just work. Through, we've identified our our bottom line conclusion, kind of working backwards. We do not want a broad definition of direct tax because that's going to just be completely unworkable. Second thing that we've basically, and we're reading things holistically. We haven't even gotten to getting rid of slavery and all the rest in in in, in later eras. This is still the Hylton era. Second thing. So we don't want a broad definition. We want one, ideally, the Constitution would make most sense holistically if a direct tax was the kind of tax that sensibly was connected to a census, okay? And we have an example of one kind of tax, a head tax of, of some sort, capitation. So just, just from that alone, how about a tax, Andy, on heads of lettuce, direct or indirect? That would be indirect because people correct you, and we could call it an excise we could call it an impost we could call it a duty mm -hmm. we could call it an indirect tax the one thing we don't want to do is call it a direct tax because you can't uh, deal with heads of lettuce through a census system so head of lettuce uniform the constitution actually regulates it and it has to be the same in new jersey this you know five cents a head of lettuce you know or um, a gallon of gasoline today or whatever in new jersey in Connecticut, in South Carolina, in Virginia. Fine. How about a hogshead of tobacco? Not for export, but just, you know, buy, buy, you know having or, or buying or selling a hogshead of tobacco. What kind of revenue measure is that? If we impose some sort of fee per hogshead of tobacco. That would also be an, a, you know, a non-direct tax. Yes. Whether we call it an indirect tax or a duty or an, so a head, a hogshead of tobacco should not be sensibly thought as capitation. Capitation, it's, it's um, Latin for head, okay? So hogshead of tobacco, no, not a direct tax. You know, head of lettuce, no, not a direct tax. Ah, then why did they have special rules for head of a human being of some sort? Here's why. Because they didn't want to give Congress the power to tax slavery out of existence. The South wasn't going to go for that. 
Okay. And several of the, at least one of the justices, Justice Patterson in Hylton mentions that, and he would know because he was at the Philadelphia convention. So he understands that this whole thing, direct taxes was about camouflaging slavery, you know, that getting extra credit for extra slaves. And he says, that's another reason not to read this broadly. This to read it narrowly is part of a stinky, stinky compromise. So I'm not going to read direct tax broadly. So I have two holistic reasons, maybe three, for, maybe we'll get up to 18, for reading direct tax narrowly. One, that if we have a broad definition, it's going to be really hard to jigger the numbers so that all 13 or 15 or eventually 50 states all come up with the same thing, the same per capita amount, per apportionment amount. Two, unless it's something that's easily countable in the census, the thing that the item that's being taxed, it's going to be utterly unworkable. And three, we actually know that this was actually part of a pro-slavery stinky compromise that shouldn't be read you know, more broadly than it has to. Okay, and then, then you were going to jump in. Yeah, so can you explain why this, is not a, this interferes with a tax on slavery? Why, how does this prevent one from taxing slavery? The only thing I can think of is that you're going to have to tax, you know, if, if you tax uh, the number of persons uh, and, you know, you're adding, you're counting the slaves as three-fifths or something like that, then you're still going to wind up, if you only have one slave in, uh, in New York and you have a million slaves in South Carolina, you're going to tax that slave in New York at a million times what you're taxing it in South Carolina. That's the only thing I can think of. As long as a tax is uniform... It can be as high as you like unless it's a direct tax. So I can have a two-cent tax on a head of lettuce or a $2 tax or a $20 tax or a $2,000 tax, as long as it's uniform. I can tax lettuce out of existence. I can tax hogsheads of tobacco out of existence. But if I could tax slave heads as just a indirect tax, I could tax them out of existence. And that clause says, no, you can't do that. A tax on slave heads, that's a capitation. And that's going to require actually a figure out a way of, of imposing high taxes on the free states as well as the slave states. Right. That was what I said before when I said that if you have one slave in New York and a million slaves in once in South Carolina, then you'll have to tax the slave in New York a million times the rate of the slave in in, uh, in South Carolina. Now here's another point, because uh, you're a math whiz. That's if there's one slave in New York. What happens if there's zero slaves? Well, then it's impossible to meet that requirement. Ah, yet another reason not to have actually a broad understanding of direct taxes, because it doesn't work. With zero. What if a state has zero carriage sales? Now I can't tax carriages in any other state. Okay. So now we have yet a third idea. Don't have it too broad and have it be something connected to the census and have it where it's almost guaranteed that you're never going to have a zero because zero screws everything up in, in, in the whole system. And fourth 
let's not read it too broadly because it's actually about a stinky pro-slavery compromise. And it's about actually try- fooling the electorate by having them focus on the direct tax clause rather than the representation clause. Because a lot of people in the ratification process are thinking about taxes. That was the issue under the Articles of Federation and not representation, which is what's going to be under the new constitution. Because the articles was one state, one vote. In the constitution, it's going to be actually um, larger states have more votes in, in the house. But but we wanted to not we wanted to the framers wanted to avoid too much attention on the pro-slavery bonus of the three fifths clause. So they they were fuzzing things up. And you can see where um, Article One, Section Nine, the first clause. Uh, complements that because the flip side of of how many slaves you have is how many slaves you import, um, and if you're if you just want to tax importation of slaves, they limit. Now that would arguably be an indirect tax, um, but it would be uh, but it's limited to ten dollars per person because it, it, it's it's no, there's something that's happening in uh, an importation. Okay, mm-hmm. um, so okay. Um, so maybe, and that's going to begin to help us too. Okay. So we, we still haven't come up with our definition of direct yet. I'm going to come up with a definition in, in, in the end, but a head tax is a direct tax. And ideally we want it to be something connected to the census because that's going to make it workable. And it has to be something that actually in theory shouldn't, can't be zero because that's going to be sort of unworkable. And we don't want too broad a definition also because all these things are part of stinky slavery compromises about um, imported slaves and head taxes on slaves and fuzzing up the three fifths clause. All of this stuff is all yucky slavery stuff. Okay. And Patterson says that in his opinion, this is um, in Hylton justice Patterson. And he was there at Philadelphia, by the way. So he knows what he's talking about. Here's what William Patterson said in his opinion in Hylton. The provision was made by the Philadelphia drafters in favor of the Southern states who possessed a large number of slaves. And then he went on to say, and for that reason, it shouldn't be broadly applied in other contexts. He goes on to say, look, the math doesn't work for stuff like carriages. In some states, there are many carriages. In others, but few. Shall the whole sum fall on one or two individuals in the state when we happen to own and possess carriages? The thing would be absurd and inequitable. Okay, and that's if they're one or two. Remember, if there's zero, you can't do the math at all. And then he comes up with a definition. Uniformity is an instant operation at once, easy, certain, efficacious. All taxes on expenses or consumption are indirect taxes. A tax on carriages is of this kind and, of course, is not a direct tax. So that's what Patterson says, and he's building on Hamilton. Here's what Justice Chase says, and, and he's echoing Hamilton. In his view, quote, direct taxes contemplated by the Constitution are only two, to wit, a capitation and a tax on land. Oh, that's the new one. I haven't told you about tax on land yet. So head tax and a tax on land. Now, here's what Hamilton says, actually, first at Philadelphia and then in the Federalist Papers, and he actually says it in his notes in preparation for his oral argument. His notes are a little bit more complicated, but it's also what several of the justices in Hylton say, and they're building on Hamilton. Now, 
at Philadelphia, Hamilton actually says head taxes and taxes on land should be in a special category. and They should be judged by apportionment. And he says the same thing in the Federalist Papers. Here's what, what he says in the Federalist number 36. He contradistinguishes direct and indirect taxes. And he says indirect taxes, quote, must be understood as duties and excises on articles of consumption, whereas direct taxes beyond capitation meant taxes, quote, on real property or houses and lands. So he's limiting direct taxes to head taxes and real property taxes, taxes on houses and land. Now, why? One, because actually it doesn't move around like carriages or, or, or people. Two, it can be measured in a census. And so it meets, you know, some of these criteria that we've laid out. Um, but still, okay, what exactly unites land taxes on, uh, on the one hand or house taxes and head taxes? What makes them different from kind of everything else connected to the word direct? Okay, I've connected it to what works for a census, but in what sense are they direct taxes? Here's the idea. A direct tax is something that can't easily be avoided or evaded without real hardship. Okay, how is a head tax? You know, the only way you avoid it is by dying, which that's, that, that's kind of a hardship, okay? What about land taxes? And this connects with something that you said much earlier, Andy. They were living in a world where a lot of people were land rich but cash poor. You inherit your family homestead from your family, but it's not generating lots of cash money. So you have no cash money to pay the tax man. And it is a bit of a hardship, to, especially in a world that doesn't have banks. You see, that doesn't have mortgages easily available, which you can now do in, in five minutes to, to turn your family homestead into ready money to pay the taxman that's not so easy and to oblige you to sell your family homestead, oh, that is a bit of a hardship. If that's kind of the test in part, something that can't be avoided without real hardship, carriages are indirect. And here's what Hamilton said. Having occasion, this is an oral argument, having occasion to observe how proper a subject a carriage was for taxation, since it's a mere article of luxury, which the man might either use or not, as was convenient to him, Hamilton added, it so happens that I once had a carriage myself and found it convenient to dispense with it, but my happiness was not in the least diminished. Okay, you know, a carriage tax is easy to avoid, just get rid of your carriage. And you could say, well, get rid of your family homestead. That's not so easy to do. And by the way, that was the very passage that justice, uh, that one of the justices had mentioned that, that so kind of moved him um, when he was writing to his wife, Justice Iredell. Now we're going to come to a wealth tax today. Here's what Amar says as a matter of originalism. We shouldn't have a broad definition of direct tax because the broader definition we do, the more unwieldy and unworkable it is. We're going to have something ideally that's workable. It should be something that's easily measurable by the census that doesn't move around all the time. Now, heads do, but we measure the census only once every 10 years, and then that's it. Land doesn't move. 
you see, and you can measure the value of the land every 10 years in, a, in an annual census. Something that can never be zero, because zero makes it absolutely unworkable. Well, there's not going to be a state with zero people or with zero land, but there are going to be states maybe with zero carriages or zero hogsheads of tobacco or zero carriages. And to repeat, we shouldn't have a broad definition because this is kind of a pro a series of, of slavery related compromises. Is that an argument that held water in, in the 1790s? I read you Patterson saying mm-hmm. just that in Hylton, which is why everyone has to read Hylton and I hadn't before. And I'm thinking, Oh wow. How interesting is this? This is, um, and now, well, it seems to me after, that could be read. That statement could be read as meaning that it was part of a deal, not that it was stinky, but that it was just part of a deal, and the deal had okay, a limited no, 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 scope. No, 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 Andy, you ha- you have to read the passage. It's not that's not what Patterson is saying. He's saying it's part of a stinky deal, and I'm not going to read it broader than I have to because it makes no sense to read it broader. And it's part of a stinky deal. Um, so it's not some great principle. Okay. It's just part of a stinky compromise. Now, none of that makes any sense once we've gotten rid of slavery. So even if you don't buy anything that I said thus far. As a matter of intergenerational synthesis, should we have a broad understanding of direct tax after we get rid of slavery altogether, after we actually have a different apportionment rule, getting rid of the three-fifths clause, and after we have a 16th Amendment that's actually, yet again, we the people saying, tax us, tax us, tax us, we believe in it. Why do we have the 16th Amendment? I'll tell you why. We have the 16th Amendment because five to four, the United States Supreme Court, in a case called Pollock versus New York in the 1890s, five to four, the Supreme Court said, oh, a certain kind of income tax is a direct tax. And since it's not apportioned by the states, apportionment's not going to work. You see, it's unworkable. You can't have a certain kind of income tax because it's a direct tax. Well, what was their logic? Ah, the, this income tax was a tax among other things, on rental income above and beyond wage income, salary income. Uh, Income from labor was also a tax on rental income. Court says, oh, well, rental, a tax on rental income is like a tax on the underlying land, the real estate, and that's an improper direct tax. Now, it's a clever argument. I don't buy it because actually, when we understand the, you know, the reasons that we had the land rule, that was about hardship and all the rest. People who you know, were land rich but cash poor because they inherited their family estate. Well, if it's generating rental income, that's not a problem anymore. And by the 1890s, you can, take out, you can, you can use your, your land as a piggy bank. You can take out money to pay the tax men. So we shouldn't do that. Now, four justices dissented. One of them was John Marshall Harlan, the same great dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson, and he actually said this is going to be a disaster for the country. Eventually, the American people sided with Harlan and adopted a constitutional amendment. So that amendment is yet again a reason to say don't don't read broadly provisions that make it difficult, you know, for the federal government to raise revenue. Who signed, by the way, first income federal income tax into law? Our man Abe Lincoln. During the Civil War, signed Pollock it. was later. So it was. So Abraham freaking Lincoln signs a, an income tax bill, until, and the people at the time think it's perfectly okay. The Supreme Court, a case called Springer, 
says it's perfectly okay. And then in the 1890s, when we have a gilded age and a very different kind of fat cat Republican on the court, you see, they just make stuff up and invalidate what was good enough for Alexander Hamilton, what was good enough, I believe, for George Washington and the unanimous Supreme Court in Hylton, and what was good enough for Abraham Lincoln, okay? And they did so to protect plutocrats, and we the people actually struck the quartet, all reasons not to have broad definitions of direct tax. By the way, just one point of personal privilege on, on that. The lawyer who came up with this brilliant evil genius theory that a tax on rental income was in effect a tax on the underlying land and was in effect a direct tax that required apportionment, which was going to be unworkable, was a lawyer named Charles Southmade. He was a Yale Law School graduate. He made a ton of money. His law partners convinced five justices on the Supreme Court to do this. He became very wealthy in part because of, of this and other things that he did. He, used, he, he, he His family gave a ton of money to Yale Law School. They endowed a chair in his name. And who did they give the chair to? Oh, a young Akhil Amar who goes around writing that this theory is fakakta. It's, it's, it's Michigas. It's, it's just crazy. So, so, and before Akhil Amar, the person who held the South made chair was a very great, the, one of the most preeminent tax scholars of the 20th century and named Boris Bitker. And then he later gave it up to get a Sterling chair as I later gave up my South made chair to get the Sterling chair. And he wrote this five-volume treatise on tax in which he said, oh, South May's argument is, bo- is bogus. It's baloney. Hylton was right. Pollock was wrong. I'm, I'm with, with, with Harlan. So, so here's what happened. This is, this is Charles South May's great claim to fame and fortune. His family gives a whole bunch of money to Yale. And then they, they, they give the chair first to Boris Bitker and then to Akhil Amar, who say, this is craziness. Let's go back for a minute to the direct tax uh, question. So basically, we've said, okay, um, a tax on, on persons um, is a, a direct tax. And we can't avoid that because the Constitution itself says capitation or other direct right. tax. So that's a pretty clean textual argument. And then we've said, now you've, and, and that it's, we've established how that's related to slavery. And then you said, okay, also a tax on land is, is a direct tax. How is that related to slavery? That one isn't. That's related to it because there's not always just one thing in, in law, one purpose. And, uh, you know, it's a complicated uh, equation. It's about workability and, and connectedness to the census. Okay. Well, let me, let me see now if I can put it all together. Um, a, uh, a land tax can be understood as a direct tax because some people are land rich, but cash poor at the founding. That's the hardship test. And because it can be linked easily to the census, that's the census test. Also, it can be made workable. It's true uh, there'll, be need, there'll need to be a uh, mathematical adjustment so that each state's land tax revenue is precisely proportionate to its population. But with a computer, that can be done in one minute with a discount factor for each of the 50 states. Finally, there's no zero problem because every state has non-zero land and has land that's valued at more than zero. So it's a workable tax. Um, It passes the hardship test. It passes the census test. It passes the non-zero test, and it's workable. So therefore, it passes all of the criteria we've identified for a direct tax. Right. Okay. But 
if all that is so, then why don't we see federal property taxes, whereas we do see state property taxes? I'm going to just propose a possible explanation for why. Um, and it's because state taxes tax wealthier property more. And that seems fair. Um, but a federal property tax, because it would be a direct tax, would end up taxing poorer state or states um, with poorer land uh, or less valuable land at higher rates. And that seems perverse uh, politically. And this is really uh, a modern version of what Justice Patterson said in his opinion in Hylton about carriage taxes, that wealthier states would have lower rates and poorer states would have higher rates if carriage taxes were properly considered as direct taxes. Right, you are. Now, back to the future or to this week. We've begun to answer already the question of why actually property taxes, real estate taxes today are state and local taxes and not federal taxes. That's the residue, the legacy of Hamilton and Hylton. And we've also suggested... It's possible a land tax today, a federal land tax, wouldn't be so unfair because people can borrow um, against the equity. But, but, but note that a land tax from a strict point of view might not tax your equity in the land, um, but just your ownership or something. So it could lead to hardship if you were already mortgaged to the hilt. But what about a wealth tax? Well, for a lot of people, land is part of their wealth, but it's not the entirety of their wealth. Their wealth includes all sorts of stuff that's very liquid. And with Marcus today, easy to measure. It's your bank account. It's your brokerage, your money market account, your savings account, your checkings account, your money market account, the the current up to the minute value of your stock and bond portfolio, you know, which you you can look up in, in five seconds, whether you've cashed out or not your positions, we know what you're worth. And much of this is very easy to liquidate today. Markets are so much thicker. You can buy and sell bonds and stocks and other assets very easily. So that's going to be the debate. Conservatives are going to say a wealth tax is a direct tax, which will doom it. It's just it's not going to be administrable. And they're going to point to one little passage of Alexander Hamilton's notes for the oral argument in Hylton, in which actually the word wealth appears. And I'm going to say in response, oh, but he didn't say that at Philadelphia. He just said land and heads. And he didn't say that in the Federalist Papers. He just said land and heads. And none of the justices in Hylton said anything more than lands and heads. So it's probable, I believe, that he actually didn't say wealth at the oral argument. Those were early notes. They were incomplete. And, and we don't actually have a transcript of what he did say. But if he did say wealth at the oral argument, why did none of the Hylton justices repeat that? My best hunch is... You know, it was kind of careless in his first draft. It didn't really correspond to what he said in the more careful Federalist Papers and what he said at at Philadelphia when he actually had a plan. And so he actually probably omitted that in his oral argument. Can't prove that, but that's my best guess. But the debate about a wealth tax going forward may very well turn, um, ladies and gentlemen of, of, of the audience, on this nice question about what Hamilton actually really thought. And the answer to the question that Andy asked at the very beginning, what is a direct tax? Mm. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you would advocate a wealth tax, only that it's constitutional. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a horrible thing. I think there may be better ways of doing things. So we've we've beaten Houghton to death here, but I think, you know, for good reason. Um, in terms of originalism, you know, we've taken a look at the constitutional text in various places and in a holistic way. So yes. yeah, we haven't looked at the at the clauses in isolation, but rather in how they relate to each other and how they relate to the great purposes of the Constitution. Right. We've looked at the uh, history in terms of uh, Alexander Hamilton and um, his argument before the court. And also, and we've identified of- stinky history too, you know, which is a critique of originalism. And I think, you know, we're talking about that as well. We're not hiding that. And originalism, one knock is, oh, people disagree. Yes, they do. But on this one, side with Hamilton and Washington because they understood it better. Or side with the later Madison because the later Madison, as President of the United States, signs into law a carriage tax. And Noah Feldman in his biography of Madison doesn't tell you about that because it shows that Madison actually flip-flopped. And uh, Now, he would say this was liquidation and, you know, but... Early on, he's actually predicting in letters that the Supreme Court is going to side with him, and they kicked his butt unanimously because he didn't understand this stuff. So, yes, we're seeing a certain kind of, and then we brought in the intergenerational dynamic of originalism. All the, all the, all the issues that we teed up before are on display here. Well, I also think that um, in terms of responding to critiques of originalism, you know, one of them is, was that the Constitution is founded in disgrace, um, in terms of slavery, and that makes it illegitimate um, and discredited, and perhaps so, you know, in part. But in this case, you know, you talked about the uh, the opinion by William Patterson, and he very, very early on in the Republic is saying, "Well, let's not, you know, we, we had to make this concession to slavery, but let's recognize that we did so, and let's not interpret it any broader than we need to." you know, recognizing this was, you know, in his view, a necessary evil. But the point is that it's that he's trying to limit that effect um, of that, that, that evil act um, and have it not spread throughout every corner of the republic, Let not have it not taint us any more than necessary. Brilliant. And let's also note that the court screwed it up in uh, the Gilded Age in the Pollock case and in dissent actually, the great John Marshall Harlan, the elder, actually said, don't read this broadly because it was part of a pro-slavery compromise that we've repudiated. He echoes Patterson's point. That's the same great dissenter, John Marshall Harlan, in the name for John Marshall, as who dissented in Plessy versus Ferguson, which was decided a couple of years after Pollock. And what have I been saying? Okay, the Constitution isn't perfect, but neither are the precedents. And Plessy was bad, egregiously wrong, and was rightly tossed overboard in Brown. I think Pollock was bad, egregiously bad, and was tossed overboard, in that case, tossed overboard by a constitutional amendment. We talked about Dred Scott being egregiously bad, a substantive due process case. Another one tossed overboard by a constitutional amendment, an amendment that actually says everyone born in America is born a citizen, whereas Dred Scott said blacks can never be citizens. So you're seeing, yeah, it is true. Our constitution is imperfect, but so are the cases. 
I believe the Constitution in general has gotten better over time with the amendments, a 13th Amendment, a 14th Amendment, a 16th Amendment, and the cases have actually ebbed and flowed. And you're seeing here how if, if you always just assume, oh, the judges knew what they were talking about, no, they didn't. They didn't in Dred Scott. They just made it up. They didn't in Plessy versus Ferguson. They just ignored the word equal. And they didn't in the Pollock case. They took a constitution and basically ignored equality and, and overprotected property. Now, you've said that Hylton is the most important case of the 1790s. And, you know, you've certainly explained direct taxes, which is really, I mean, my impression coming, coming from this discussion is that it's a contorted, tortured concept, which, frankly, I also relate to the fact that it's born of slavery Yes, compromises. Yes, that it's born of, of people that didn't want it there, um, in yes. part. Uh, at least, yes. you know, some. But at any rate, because it's so limited, the concept of direct taxes, it makes me wonder why this is such an important case. If, if direct taxes are such a peripheral concept in the Constitution, is this important because it relegated direct taxes to that remote corner of, of, our, of our Constitution? Exactly so, because James freaking Madison took the opposite view. And if you're like Noah Feldman or my friend Gordon Wood, who's been, you know, a, a podcast guest or lots of other folks here, you think, oh, it's Madison's constitution. But I don't think that, Andy. And you asked me early on, you know, why I'm so emphatic in the new book that it's Washington's constitution. And that's because it matters on stuff like this. Because if it's Madison's constitution and not Washington's, and not Hamilton's, oh, then the fact that he thinks a carriage tax is unconstitutional, you know, would, would have to be given more weight, and we should then disregard what the Supreme Court said unanimously and pay no attention, or ultimately, you know, disregard Alexander Hamilton and George Washington, who signs his name into law, and that would be, that would have huge implications for the rest of American history. I've given you an account in which, again, they don't all agree, we have to choose, but the court early on actually got it right and took a clause that, if misread, could have really exploded the constitutional project and actually made it into a teeny, the teeny tiny little thing that it deserves to be. Okay, yeah, so, so it's an important case because it made the clause, the concept of direct taxes, unimportant. Yes, you've got the irony, just so. So I guess that was the most important case ever argued in Philadelphia, which is where the Supreme Court met for Hylton. A big case precisely because it cuts a clause down to size. Okay, great. Well, audience, you now know something that you could tell at every cocktail party. Oh, um, oh, Andy, Andy, Dobbs is a big case. It takes substantive due process and cuts it down to size. So, yes, a big case can be one that actually takes a concept that, that, that could actually, if allowed to, become cancerous and destroy in the entire body politic or the entire constitutional corpus. And substantive due process run amok can do that. A really broad understanding of direct taxes could have basically undermined the pro-tax project that was the United States Constitution, and still is. Okay, so we'll be back next week, 
and who knows what will be in the news between now and then for us to uh, relate again to our originalism project, which, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how the developments of the day are carrying us along the originalism, originalism river here. Well, we did talk about Donald Trump invoking the Fifth Amendment rule against compelled self-incrimination in criminal cases, Donald Trump invoking the Fifth Amendment in the civil context. That's at least one possibility. I actually have thoughts on that. I, I hear Our audience is groaning now, but, oh, I've got another article on that. It's called Fifth Amendment First Principles. It's co-authored with Rene Leto, and it's the sequel to the Fourth Amendment First Principles article we talked about last week. I'm waiting for the uh, series of second principles arguments, uh, <laughs> articles to come out. That's what this podcast is. <laughs> okay. Next week. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>